It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Welcome to episode 119 of TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined by my friend, co-host, and THR's chief TV critic, Dan Feinberg. Dan, how you doing, my friend? I'm doing okay as we're recording it. It's National Nurses Day. It's also National Teachers Day if you're in Jamaica. And of course, it is Mother's Day weekend. So happy to all and sundry for whom those happinesses are appropriate. Yes, well said. And happy Mother's Day to all, all of our listeners, including my Outlander loving mom, Maxine. I hadn't realized she listened to the podcast. She does. I think, you know, sometimes what is more than just Ron Moore answering her question. But yeah, <laughs> from time Excellent. to time. So, Mom, if you're listening, happy Mother's Day. Well, what do you say we dive into this week's headlines, Dan? Succession season three is starting to come together. Not soon enough to get Succession on my damn TV, but whatever. Uh, with the news this week that Adrian Brody and Alexander Skarsgård have booked extremely tall recurring guest roles, they will be joining Sanal Lathan in the burgeoning cast. Elizabeth Olsen is moving out of WandaVision and into an HBO Max murder mystery from Big Little Lies collaborators David E. Kelly and Nicole Kidman. More like HBO Axe, am I right? Zing! Elsewhere at HBO Max, the streamer may wind up sharing Pennyworth, the Batman-adjacent drama that has been an Epics original for its first two seasons. The streamer has also been busy casting this week, closing a deal for Taika Watiti to play Blackbeard the Pirate in the series he's already executive producing for them called Our Flag Means Death. Additionally, HBO Max has tapped Ryan Murphy favorite Finn Whitrock to play Guy Gardner in the big-budget Green Lantern series from Greg Berlanti. In other casting news, Ali Wong will topline Amazon's adaptation of Brian K. Vaughn's Paper Girls. Over at Fox, Fox has bailed two years ahead of time on a Thursday night football deal, and Amazon will be getting a jumpstart on its previously announced deal and will air games starting in 2022. In renewal news, FX is bringing back Mayans MC for a fourth season, its second without creator Kurt Sutter. And the morning show Emmy winner Billy Crudup will star in Apple's straight-to-series retro-futuristic dramedy Hello Tomorrow. And wrapping up headlines this week, and you can file this one under Yes, Really, NBC has ordered a reality competition series based on, wait for it, Slip and Slide. The show will premiere in August after the closing ceremonies of the Summer Olympic Games. Dan, are you ready to slip and slide on NBC? I, I am not, but on the other hand, given the the state of the landscape and the love that some people have for that mini golf reality show. Holy and Moly other... is great on ABC and was renewed sure, for two more seasons, and I cannot wait to have that show back on my screen. So I don't you dare saying, insult Holy Moly. I am not insulting Holy Moly. I am not insulting The Floor is Lava. I am not Which insulting I also love. Any very so you're gonna love slip and slide. So why are you making fun of slip and slide when you're gonna be watching that show religiously? No mockery of slip but and slide. But how do you make slip and slide into a competition show? I mean, easy. You try to see who's gonna slip and or slide the furthest distance or the shortest distance or around. It's, I mean, it's basically wipeout, right? But pretty much, only yeah. sort of, only more horizontal. <laughs> 
Okay. Uh, you know, Wipeout sort of has higher things and lower things and people bouncing into balls and stuff. Yeah, but no, it, this is basically this, just this people slipping and falling, right? So. Exactly. It makes as much sense as, as anything else. I am, I, you know, this is, this is the landscape that we live in, so I am entirely accepting of it. <laughs> well, with all that out of the way, let's dive into this week's top five. Number one. Leading off, upfronts are just around the corner. By this time next week, the broadcast networks will have made a patootie load of renewals, cancellations, and perhaps even started to dole out new series orders. So because by next week, things will actually be well into happening, and because the week after that actually is the upfronts, we're going to do a little upfront previewing this week. So where do we stand, Leslie? Well, the action started this week as ABC finally got its renewals underway with pickups for Big Sky and The Good Doctor. Still nothing as we record this. It's now Thursday around noon um, at, on Grey's Anatomy as I hear negotiations are near the finish line for another season. NBC, meanwhile, continued with its early season pickups with renewals for comedies Keenan and Young Rock joining Mr. Mayor. Uh, the network continues to be busy and, and handed out another series order for another Law & Order offshoot, this one about defense attorneys and from procedural queen Carol Mendelson, the former CSI showrunner. And I mean, look, it's it, it, it's so fascinating to see all of this stuff coming together as you have a new regime at NBC. The network also handed out a late season pilot order to an, a, a sequel of the great comedy series Night Court. This one starring executive producer Big Bang and Big Bang Theory grad Melissa Rauch alongside original star John Larroquette, which I cannot get this show fast enough, even though it's a pilot. I love the original Night Court and Melissa is going to do amazing things with this. Plus, I mean, with John Larroquette, it's like they're kind of actors in the same mold. Not to be left out of the renewal craze, the CW is close to picking up all of its scripted originals again. This week, handing out second season orders for Kung Fu and a third season pickup to Stargirl. Over at CBS, we've talked a lot about new incarnations of NCIS and CSI and FBI and all their other procedurals. And one of them, NCIS Hawaii, is starting to come together with Vanessa Lachey tapped to star in the straight-to-series spinoff. So, yeah, so what does all this mean? So, well, you know, if you really want specifics, I have my usual broadcast scorecard up on the site, and I recently tweeted it if you're interested. That has all of the tracking for renewals, final seasons, cancellations, new series orders, and the odds for all the bubble shows that I just updated this month. But yeah, look, ABC just got started with all of its renewal decisions. The CW only has one show left that hasn't premiered and only has one new series order with, with the 4400. Fox has renewed all of its animated comedies and nothing more with all of its new drama series pickups possibly done. NBC has perennial bubble shows, Good Girls, Manifest, Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist, and Freshman Dramas, and late season debuts of the, SV, the SVU spinoff and Debris, with four additional new series split evenly between comedy and drama already on the slate. So there's a lot going on, and there's, you know, it feels like, you know, outside of ABC, very few decisions left to be made, you know, in terms of renewals and cancellations. So a couple things that, you know, the usual suspects left on the bubble. But there are some bigger questions, given that the pandemic has really kind of, th you know, thrown pilot season and upfront again into more turmoil. Nothing like last year, but 
All of the upfront presentations are, are going to be virtual and pre-taped, but you're going to have another round of executive calls. And this year, the, the execs doing those calls are a lot of them are different. Uh, so it'll be really interesting to see how the pandemic will impact this year's presentations. So what that means is you're probably going to see some decisions for mid-season shows made without replacement shows being greenlit. So maybe you're going to see Good Girls or Zoe's, you know, getting picked up or or canceled. I don't know what, you know, those are both very much on, on the bubble, but you're going to have to make these early renewals and and cancellation decisions before you have the, the standard amount of data that you would normally have. So there's a lot going on, but it, it's it's an interesting year. Yeah, lots of several interesting things in there. As you, as you say, those bubble shows, they're even there's even less way of figuring out what the decisions are going to be based on this year than ever before. I think with something like Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist, NBC has every reason to think that that show could make at least a ripple in the Emmy race this year. I, I wouldn't say it's a, you know, distinct likelihood, but as I may have mentioned about 10 times in the past three weeks, the Emmy comedy race is such a, a ridiculous mess that there's no reason why they shouldn't be able to get a nomination for Jane Levy and a couple other nominations. Now, they won't, but whatever. So that that kind of interests me. I'm also interested by the networks that are doing calls that have a, as you say, new executives, but also executives who, because of various things involving TCA press tour either not happening or only happening virtually in the winter, haven't to some degree met with the wide press at all. And I find that to be interesting. It's, it's a sort of a wrinkle because normally it's the exact same reporters and the exact same uh, executives. And it was, you know, something that I was always told when executives didn't necessarily want to do summer press tour with the reporters was, oh, they just did lots of upfronts availability. So, you know, why do they need to do it again? Well, in this case, some of these people have either A, just gotten on the job or haven't met with reporters in many, 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 many moons other than the couple hand-selected reporters who they talk to when they have little announcements they have to make. So, yeah, that, that to me is an interesting wrinkle. I'm also interested that you think that John Larroquette and uh, Melissa Rauch fit from the, are, are from the same cloth when all I can think of when I see them is, boy, they're going to have a lot of time making really, really hilarious jokes about how he's 37 feet tall and she's two feet tall. So that's going to be pretty much the basis for the entire series, I think, is attempting to put the two of them in the same frame. And there's nothing wrong with that as the basis for a series, you know, because for heaven's sakes... Why bother if you're not going to make that into a running joke? But yes, I assume that probably the pilot will have at least five jokes about how much taller he is than her. And it will be hilarious each time. Yeah, you know, it's interesting that you mention all the new executives because you're right. Most of them have not met the press corps. And yes, there's been a few isolated interviews. There's a great interview from our colleague Michael O'Connell with Susan Rovner up on THR.com now and in print this week. Um, I've spoken with with uh, the new president at Freeform. Um, but yeah, we haven't heard from Craig Erwick since he added ABC to his oversight on top of Hulu. Um, you know, there's it, it, there's just a, it's a lot of change. And you know, Disney has a lot of new priorities. Peacock, you know, NBCU has a lot of new priorities. Basically, everyone is pivoting towards streaming. So how are these broadcast networks going to make decisions? And how are these executives going to discuss keeping broadcast relevant and what they metrics they look at and when they make these renewal, pickup, and cancellation decisions as 
streaming is priority number one. You know, one of the things that we've all talked about in the, in the past, you know, year, couple of years is that each of these new shows that are getting picked up, they will all have to have new streaming deals worked out. And this is probably the first upfront. Actually, not probably. It is the first upfront when all of the networks have streamers to supply. This time a year ago, obviously, the pandemic delayed everything. Peacock hadn't launched yet. HBO was just uh, coming up on launching HBO Max. Paramount Plus was still called CBS All Access and not really a priority for anyone. These new shows will all wind up going into the broadcast network streaming siblings. And, you know, we already even seen one show that was developed for NBC Langdon, which was recently retitled was picked up as a Peacock original series. So, it, you know, it, it it's going to be very interesting to hear executives who now have other priorities to juggle, some executives anyway, who have other priorities to juggle and streamers to feed. CBS, of course, still has broadcast-focused executives. Fox, the same, although they've been shifting more. Tubi recently announced that they were getting into streaming. That's the ad-supported platform owned by Fox. Um Charlie Collier still really is in charge of the the linear network. Um, And then, you know, ABC, like I said, it's a content group that also oversees Hulu. NBC obviously does the broadcast network, Peacock, and all the cable networks. Um, You know, yeah, and CW is still, you know, I think we'll probably see some of the CW development eventually wind up on HBO Max's originals or maybe even CW Seed, although I don't, I would be really surprised if that happened. But it's very interesting to see how, how the, entire ecosystem works out this year during the upfronts. And normally this is the time of the year when there's the great joy and excitement about all of the new shows and all of the new pilots. And obviously last year there was significantly less joy and enthusiasm because there were significantly fewer pilots because no one could make anything. Um, I, I feel, and I could be wrong, as if this is a second consecutive year with basically no buzz about new pilots. What are you hearing? What seems like people are talking about it as we're heading towards pickups? Or is it even quiet on your end? Um, it's definitely a little more quiet this year because you're see- it's kind of still a hodgepodge of a season. You still have a lot of pilots that were picked up a year ago that had their cast options extended and are still in contention. There are a couple of new, we talked about Night Court, um, a couple of new orders that are late in the season, which means you're probably going to see some new show pickups f- earmarked for fall, but you may not have decisions from all the networks for new shows picked up for mid-season and beyond, whatever mid-season and beyond looks like this year. This year it was in like March and April instead of January. So, you know, there's a couple of big things, you know, going on. You know, the first is if we're going to really switch to year-round development for pilot season or, you know, and, and finally do away with this like mad rush over three months to get, you know, 60 to 100 pilots cast, shot, and hired directors and where you're all competing for the same group of people, you know, but, you know, in, in a bigger sense, you know, we talked last week that the Alec Baldwin, Kelsey Grammer comedy that had buzz was from the co-creator of Modern Family, Christopher Lloyd. ABC passed on that. Sources say CBS is kicking the tires on that one. Um, but yeah, uh, in, in terms of the rest of the, of the pilots that that do have buzz, and I, I think you, you can kind of predict knowing what these networks or what the personality of these networks are, what they're going to pick. ABC is probably going to going to wind up back in business with the Disney, you know, doing another Disney show, this one with uh the Once Upon a Time creators with Epic. Uh Lee Daniels and, and you know his new take on the Wonder Years, that'll probably go. I'd be shocked if it didn't. 
CBS is working with Sarah Cooper on a comedy starring Natalie Morales. And maybe per source is picking up a medical procedural starring Sophia Bush. So yes, CBS doing procedurals, great. CBS doing more comedies with women that are a little bit more unique that don't necessarily, you know, fit in with its, you know, stereotypical comedy brand. Um, you know, elsewhere, they could also wind up picking up a political drama with Patrick Dempsey. Sources say they just extended the options on him. He's obviously got more buzz after returning to Grey's Anatomy this year, but the market is, you know, probably a little fatigued when it comes to shows about politics, but maybe things will be different when mid-season 2022 rolls around. And Fox already picked up a lot of drama, so they may be done. They've got a lot of animated comedies in the works. Obviously, losing football in uh, next year will create more room on the schedule, but they've made a lot of buys on the unscripted front. And you know, now that they own animation company Bento Box, which is the animators behind Bob's Burgers, they're making a big push for animation. They will own all of that content. Plus, they still have all the big staples coming back. And yeah, you know, NBC ex- expect more of the same. They just picked up another Law and Order. CBS has all of its, you know, spin-off, new spin-offs of, of its tried and true procedurals. But these networks all have a personality right now, even with new regimes. And it seems like it's going to be more of the same. So when you look at the pilot slate, and we have again, my pilot grid is up on on the website, and I'll tweet it again this week. But you know the network personalities, and it's probably going to be more of the same, despite some new leadership. Well, we will definitely have much more of this next week and much more of this the following week. But up next, let's talk about the late night space, which is losing two hosts this summer. Number two. This week, Conan O'Brien officially set an end date for his 28-year late night run and will wrap his TBS show June 24th before turning his attention to his forthcoming HBO Max series. And in related news, this just in, NBC is shifting away from original talk shows in the coveted, and that's sarcasm, 1.30 a.m. <laughs> spot, and has canceled a little late with Lily Singh after a two-season run. Season two was retooled. They had a new set, a new showrunner, a new writing staff, but NBC is changing course per sources, and that takes Singh, who was the only woman to host a late-night series on broadcast, out of the well, out of everything, she will next focus on developing unscripted fare for NBC Universal's unscripted studio and will star in a scripted comedy from blackish creator Kenya Barris for Netflix. So, you know, she's a talent and yeah, no more, no more late night, no more late, late night. So, of course, they still have Fallon and, and Seth, but I think the 1.30 a.m. slot was probably a little bit too expensive for whatever returns they were getting amid a pandemic when people were, chances are, not staying up as late and watching late night TV. They 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 had a good thing there with Carson Daly that required no effort whatsoever to maintain. I mean, I assume probably it required some effort on his part, but, you know, I mean, otherwise, that's an expensive contract. Yeah, but it still, there there was there was no real sense that sort of clips from the Lily Singh show were going viral or or anything. And that's what you need, I guess, in order to to cut through in any way, shape, or form. Uh, the Conan thing is interesting because we've talked about it before, and this was not – the news this week was not revelatory or anything. We knew he was leaving. We knew he was planning on shifting to HBO Max endeavors of different kinds he hasn't said what that will actually mean but you know given well we know it's a, a it's a weekly 
variety series. So not late variety. night, not okay. right, not not a daily show, but a weekly variety series. And he'll still do the you know the traveling Conan without borders stuff. Yeah, I think he just doesn't he doesn't want to be stuck to even the sort of truncated nightly structure that he's had on TBS. And so the and I'm guessing. HBO Max or Warner Media. I'm guessing Warner Media probably was seeing diminishing returns with that show. And Conan, after an impressive career like his, that is also not a cheap contract. It's it's not, and it's you know it's kind of funny because he was, of course, the young guy in late night for so long, and now he's not. He's could very much be at the point of his career in which he'd be perfectly happy to do occasional little bursts of shows and then take time off. But th- there is still the the inherent sadness, humor, however you want to put it, of this exit from Late Night and how very, very different it's going to be from uh, a little over a decade ago when the whole fiasco went down with Jay Leno and NBC. And so he had that period where when one show ended when his version of The Tonight Show ended. It was a national campaign of rending of garments and wailing and gnashing of teeth. And he was America's most beloved redheaded victim and all of that. And, you know, there, there there's no one who's going to tell you that he didn't get utterly screwed in that situation by NBC. But NBC sort of shot its own foot off anyway with the whole Jay Leonard primetime thing, that's a whole fiasco. It's kind of hard to believe in retrospect actually took place. And yet it was a very exciting thing to uh, be a part of. Uh, yeah, a dramatically different <laughs> landscape then than, than obviously what we are, what we have now. Exactly. There, something like that really wouldn't happen today regardless, but heaven knows that was a big deal when it went down. So in contrast this is going to go out basically the way he described it is we're going to do like a clip show and we're going to talk about the good times. And that's probably fine. I think that Conan is extremely good at what he does and has done some extremely good stuff on his TBS show. I've loved a couple of his travel specials, but I also haven't felt the need to watch all of them. It's just kind of a thing where if I catch it, I do. If I don't, I don't. He's still an above average interviewer by the late night space. Uh, you know, I don't feel like we're really in a world at which the late night interviewers are incredibly perceptive interviewers. Um, you know, we we sort of lost something with uh, with Craig Ferguson when he left. He was a very, very good interviewer. Not all that many people are really invested in it. It's not what Jimmy Fallon does. Um, what Jimmy Fallon does is something else. Uh, so, yeah, it, it's it's a changing of the guard, but it's a changing of the guard in both of these two cases where people might not necessarily notice. I think in terms of the symbolic change in the guard, obviously, Lily Singh you know, she she moved into that slot with a fair amount of hype. I believe she was on the cover of our magazine, if memory serves, right? She was. And we had friend of the five, Natalie Jarvie, on the on the show to preview what to expect exactly. uh, when, when the show launched in 2019. Yeah. So that, that was something where we covered a a piece of the late night puzzle that under normal circumstances we wouldn't have. And so that is something. Uh, but it it does put us back into a position where there's a certain amount of sameness on the networks. And I, I don't know what the lesson is going to have turned out to be with, with Lily Singh. It was supposed to be a, here is a person who is a master of the digital space, who is a queen of YouTube, who, who knows what the kids want. And very clearly either that didn't convert into what she was doing on NBC or 
the thing that NBC wanted her for, even if she was doing it, turned out not to be the thing that they felt like they could be in business with. So whichever one it was, it's it's a disappointment, but I hope, yeah. And it's also a new regime at NBC. Like we said, you know, in the Upfronts topic too, you know, this is Francis Berwick and Susan Rovner looking and saying, we're paying at XYZ. These are the returns on investments. It's not cutting through. Is it worth it? Who's watching at 130? And, and you know, look, when they, rep- you know, signed her to replace Carson two years ago, this was a different world. I mean, co- I think coming out of the pandemic and as people, things start to reopen, LA is near complete reopening uh, as, as we speak. I'm still trying to figure out when I'm going to go back out to eat at a restaurant. But, you know, We're in a new world now, you know, and I don't know that the cost and the rating that the cost justify the ratings, you know, for a 130 show. And they could easily slot, you know, look, they have Amber Ruffin, you know, whose show on Peacock has been renewed. They could slot repeats there. They could do, you know, you know, it's 130 in the morning. Most people are not really paying attention. So I don't think there's a reason to to put expensive programming in in that slot. So So Amber's only weekly. So there's only so much they could really do with her, though. I do think. Personally, I would like to see that show get a good deal more exposure than it really does, because I think that there is something very good that they're doing on that show or something with a lot of potential that they're doing on that show. Yeah, I mean, they could slot SNL repeats. They could slot repeats of stuff on Peacock, whether it's topical stuff or, you know, just, you know, episodes of their new new programming or unscripted stuff or or I mean, it's one thirty in the morning, Dan. They, they could they could put a half hour of the emergency broadcast system. And was, people would probably still have the TV they, on while they were asleep. What they want to have is they want to have uh, beautiful images of uh, a, a rippling river and the national anthem playing, and then go dark for three hours. Yeah, that'd probably be cheaper. <laughs> I suspect it would be, <laughs> but yes. So I, I don't know if we're going to have much more more about. Conan when he goes off. And again, that's that's different. When he when he got squeezed out at NBC, it was the biggest story in the TV landscape. Now he's going out on his own terms to the degree that he wants to go out on his own terms. And, you know, I I wish him luck in his transition. And if he does what he wants to do, he's not really going to be gone for very long. Yeah. And I mean, this is it's not a surprise that that his show is ending either. You know, there were rumors a a few years ago when Kevin Riley was running TBS and uh, that they were going to move Conan's show from a, a daily to a weekly show. You know, obviously that didn't come to pass. They wound up cutting the, you know, the runtime instead to make it a little bit tighter and probably make it a little bit cheaper, maybe. I don't know. But yeah, it's it's not a surprise. But it'll be interesting to see what Conan does when he's entirely focused on digital. And in the meantime, Lily Singh's last episode will air June 3rd on NBC. And Conan says farewell June 24th on TBS. Number three. Up next, it's time for another network check-in. This week, we're looking at what's up with IMDb TV, or to put a different way, what the bleep is IMDb TV, Leslie? Yeah, I admittedly have not written a whole lot about IMDb TV, and that changed this week as part of its New Front presentations. So, look, what is IMDb TV? It's Amazon's free ad-supported streaming platform. So to me, it's interesting because they've really, you know, since diving into the original space last year, they've built an interesting roster of scripted originals that's, well, perked my interest this week with a few compelling pickups and a really cool-looking development slate that were all announced at its New Fronts presentation. 
This week, IMDb TV ordered a half-hour procedural from Dick Wolf about cops on patrol in Long Beach and a high school set comedy based on the lives of Tegan and Sarah from Happiest Seasons' Clea Duvall. Their development slate includes a comedy from Mike Schur, a Federal Reserve drama from the all-American showrunner who, by the way, previously worked for the Fed, and an Indian comedy based on the life of Vijal Patel that counts Sarah Gilbert and Mike Showalter among its producers. So IMDb launched uh, IMDb TV launched last year with a co-production, Alex Ryder, that was quickly renewed for a second season. And then in the past you know, year, year plus added a comedy from Greg Garcia, a spinoff of Leverage with original star Noah Wiley attached, a spinoff of Amazon's Bosch. And then it's got some, some great library titles, which if you don't mind commercials, you've got, you know, great movies like The Devil Wears Prada, shows, classic shows like Lost and Malcolm in the Middle and more, uh, and Friday Night Lights. Plus, if you haven't seen, if you're one of the few who still haven't seen Schitt's Creek, you can watch it for free on IMDb TV. You know, and from a bigger standpoint, you know, there, you know, a lot of our peers, Dan, were talking this week after some of these announcements saying, yeah, they're a little interesting. And as Pajiba wrote, IMDb TV is quietly becoming the new TBS and TNT. And financially speaking, that is not a bad thing. And, and it feels like it's a good way for Amazon to kind of double dip, as it were, because the only way that I watch IMDb TV things is through my Amazon Prime app and I already pay for Amazon Prime so this is my this is their way of getting me to sit through commercials and watch something on a service that I already pay for so well done on that one Amazon uh the the Bosch spinoff to me is particularly amusing because from what I can tell it's just Bosch and I don't understand <laughs> why it is what it is or why it's being brought to a different home because it sounds basically like it's just a new season of Bosch. And if I had to guess, probably it probably <laughs> made a new deal that with a reduced budget and probably lowered the expectations and put it on this service. Ab absolutely. I suspect the answer, the answer is money. And also I, I do suspect that they have some sort of uh, awareness of what the audience is. And if the audience is basically interchangeable with the TNT or TBS audience, and you know that that audience would be perfectly happy to watch repeats of basically Bones forever with commercials, why wouldn't you move Bosch over to a place where you can get a little bit of advertising revenue in addition to it? So there, there's logic to it. I do just still find it funny. Like, oh, it's a, it's a spinoff of Bosch focusing on the character of Bosch. <laughs> oh, okay. That that doesn't necessarily feel like you're exactly spinning very far, but whatever. Do you do you, and then leverage for logical reasons, um, not featuring original star uh, Timothy Hutton. But you know, basically, it's taking a show that was a TNT show and putting it in a new home, basically in that form. And there are people out there who are fans of leverage and who are going to be perfectly prepared to watch leverage with commercial interruptions. So I think it, it all, we talked about this a couple weeks ago uh, in response to Alan Sepinwall's question about, uh, about things airing weekly and whether we think that's going to happen on Netflix. And what I said at the time, vaguely cynically or completely cynically is basically everyone's going to do what they can make the most money with. And the thing that's the best for their service and, if the thing that allows them to make the most money and it's best for their service is to stick with you with commercials and they know that you have a property that you'll watch with commercials, 
that's that's of some value. And and you would think that the broadcast networks would be able to uh, work off a similar thing. And I think that it's fairly similar to what CBS does with Clarice and the Equalizer is they know the kind of brands that people will sit there and watch commercials through. And it's not necessarily going to be your young hip comedy or your young hip drama. It'll probably be a procedural. It'll probably be a procedural that skews older and there's money in that, though that of course doesn't line up with Alex Ryder at all, which is supposed to skew younger. And you would think, and you would think the Alex Ryder audience would probably prefer not to have to deal with commercials. So who knows? I got nothing. But IMDb TV definitely has, in the past couple of weeks, expanded in several interesting directions. And they hey, they got a good brand. We do we do know the brand, and that's there's there's value in that. <laughs> Absolutely. And I just thought it was, you know, a compelling week when you've got a lot of the stories that, that I really, you know, was interested in, in writing too. Why not? We haven't talked about it. It's something new for us to talk about, Dan. You know, that was my argument in doing this as a topic. And honestly, I'm curious to see what, what they do next. You know, especially, I mean, a, a half hour procedural from Dick Wolf. I mean, if he can do that for, for IMDb, for an, a, a streamer owned by Amazon, there's no reason that he shouldn't be able to do that for Peacock. You know, and you, you don't just need new, you know, hour long versions of Law and Order or Chicago or anything else. You can do short form stuff. You can, you know, I mean, these it follows two cops on patrol in Long Beach and every episode is is a different assignment. Right. Or is them out on a different call. Right. I mean, that's it's like a slam dunk. If that works, think of all that. You know, here's a half hour about cops in in Chicago. Here's a half hour about cops in New York. Here's a half hour about cops halfway around the world. It, you know, it, it's an, it's a slam dunk. And if you're going to put commercials on it, too, I mean, there's no way that that's not going to work. So it's true. And sort of shorter form stuff really could work. Like, I think if, you know, if like a 25 minute version of just a couple cops wandering in Long Beach works, I would think then you could like do, say, maybe a five or a seven minute version. And you could just have like, you know, sort of law and order, but you would give it to people in, in, you know, bites that they could consume quickly. And I think that would be a good business model. So like, if anyone's listening, I, I really think that there's, there's some growth potential in, in that idea that I just, um, just dated in my head right now. So, yeah. Yeah. But what would you call it, Dan? Um, I don't know. <laughs> Dick bites. <laughs> Anywho. <laughs> I think we've I think we've pretty much given this topic all of the time that it deserves. It's been a long week, kids. It's been a long month. It's been a long year. And we're still grieving for Roku Originals Quick Bites. Well, I got nothing to follow that, but uh up next, it's time for our showrunner spotlight segment. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Number four. Our guest this week is a multiple Emmy winner for her long tenure writing on The Colbert Report and has subsequently worked on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert and with Tina Fey on Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt and Mr. Mayor. 
Meredith Scardino is now the creator of Girls by Eva, the star-studded new musical comedy featuring Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsberry, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Welcome to the podcast, Meredith. Hi, thanks for having me. So getting started, where did the idea for Girls 5 Eva come from? Like what inspired the series? Um, well, I, I really wanted to write a show about, I don't know, I started off being like, I just want to write a show about like women in their, you know, early 40s or something just because that's what I am. And, um, uh, and I just was thinking like, what's, you know, when I was going through the process of like, thinking of where to set it, what to do. Um, I started noticing there were all these girl groups that were still, that were reuniting or doing tours. Spice Girls got back together. Um, they did a world tour without Posh, I believe. And, you know, and then I started looking into it and even some of the smaller groups are still, you know, out there making new music or, or doing, uh, or touring like S club seven was still out there doing things as I think S club three, um, cause they lost a few members and Backstreet Boys was doing tours. Anyway, I just thought, oh, this is an interesting world. You know, I came, I came of age during, um, you know, the late nineties, early aughts. And, and I loved all those groups. I loved, you know, Destiny's Child. I loved Spice Girls. I loved, you know, um, I watched making the band with Danity Kane and all that stuff. And it just seemed so interesting to me to, to be able to kind of talk about coming of age, in, in that era through flashbacks and then keep the show rooted in the present when they have an opportunity to restart and, and, and set it all against the hyperbolic world of, of the, of pop music, which is very fertile. So you can kind of get, you know, jokes about that and, and make commentary about that stuff. And then also, um, also write jokes about like, being a person in, in a marriage and, and what navigating, navigating that and stuff. So it just seemed like a, a good way to be able to do everything that I wanted to do. And now before we continue, I feel like I have to ask which Spice Girl were you and which S Club 7 member were you? <laughs> I don't remember the S Club 7 members, <laughs> but uh, I, I think I was, clo- I was probably Sporty Spice. That would be both was, of us, yeah. Yeah, I was like... <laughs> did, you know, I just, I just connected more with her than I did with the other members. <laughs> I like them all. You know, at the, the show, there's so many different themes working here, you know, women supporting other women, discussions about family versus career. And, and then of course, you know, life is as a 40 something women. And, and then you've got, you know, the, the, the group reuniting and then turning its back on the patriarchy and, and, you know, being exploited and trying to end that, that, trend for girl groups. But, you know, when you were pitching the series, how, how many of those themes were present in the pitch and, you know, and how many of that's, how much of that stuff came later? It was a, a lot, a lot of it was all there in the DNA of the pitch. Like I, I went in, first of all, I had written the pilot already when I, so I left my pitch and I left behind the pilot and it's very close to um, what we shot. It was just punched up a little bit, but um, it was all kind of there. I, I, I knew uh, kind of how it started with them getting sampled by Little Stinker and it get, being the catalyst to kind of bring them back together and they all went their separate ways. And, and, and then, um, and I knew that in the beginning they would do what they know. They would, you know, they all need the group for various reasons. They feel a little listless in life or, um, 
a little stagnant and they kind of need feel like when they when they do that performance in the pilot they just feel activated and alive and they feel something and it's it's exciting and they also miss each other and and um so I, I knew from the beginning that they would have this journey in season one where they would okay, we're doing it. We don't have a manager. We don't have an agent, but we're still going to do it. And we, uh, make mis they make mistakes by trying to do things the way they used to. And then they realize how messed up it was. They realize the messages in their old music aren't what they want to sing now. And they end up rejecting that. So it, it was all kind of there from the beginning. And then obviously when I assembled a group of writers and, um, they were really helpful in bringing all those themes and making them better. Now, a lot of this, as you've mentioned, a lot of the series feels like it's kind of fueled by a nostalgia for an MTV that doesn't really exist anymore. What do you miss most about 90s, early aughts MTV and what that station used to be? I mean, it was always just felt like a happening. You know, TRL was so cool because it's in the center of New York. You see the big windows and fans outside. It just, it just, it was just such a, it had in a way like a Saturday Night Live quality where it just felt like something is really happening here that was cool and you wanted to watch. Um, I, yeah, I liked, I liked looking back. I loved all, I loved to watch music videos and, and, and I feel like now it's, you know, TikTok, it, it's like morphed into TikTok where people, you know, it used to be that you would try to memorize like Rhythm Nation by Janet Jackson, and then just like keep rewinding it somehow. And now it's, you know, everyone's on TikTok doing similar things, but with current day music. Have, do you think we've lost something or have you found a way to get into TikTok enough that you don't feel old looking at the TikToks? Because I, I, I have not found that way. I don't really, I don't really get, I try to just like every now and then peek in. I'm not an active member of TikTok. <laughs> I'm a TikTok peeker. Right. Yeah. That's same, same here. It's, it's a lot in my family text threads. It's like, we all communicate in different TikTok messages yeah. that we send back and And there's forth. lots of funny stuff. Like there's lots of funny people doing funny stuff on TikTok too. It's like, it's just a medium to share your stuff, you know? Yeah. You know, um, it, it's hard not to talk about the, the amazing casting and how it came together. And, and that's something that Dan and I had been chronicling on the podcast for, well, since you started casting, but, uh, you know, looking at this, this squad, Sarah Bareilles, Renee, Elise Goldsberry, Paula, Paula Pell and busy Phillips. I mean, as you were writing it, did you have pie in the sky casting in mind for these four leads? Yeah. I mean, I, I first of all, I'm just so, I can't even believe we got this cast. I'm just like, because when I went into it, I thought, okay, I'll write a show about a girl group, but I'll mostly just put, you know, put comedy weirdos in it and, and, and not worry how much, like if they're amazing singers, maybe one person can sing. And oftentimes in a lot of these assembled groups, it was mostly about like how, how you wear a bikini and clap, you know, it wasn't like they necessarily cared if you had the most amazing pipes. But then as we were casting, we ended up getting this, this incredible cast that could do everything that, that were hilarious and, you know, amazing singers. And it's, then it actually really, I think it helps the audience really root for these characters to succeed um, as the season goes forward, because you know, they're kind of the real deal. I mean, Summer's a little, you know, she doesn't, she doesn't, quite she's finding her voice a little bit but um she's less trained i think than the others but um but yeah it was it was a dream 
casting situation. And and I credit, you know, Tina Fey is she first of all, she loves casting, Tina. She's she's very good at it. So when we had a lot of conversations about these characters, because I wrote them, and you know, and I always had my eye on Paula Pell going going from go because I'm a huge fan of hers. And and busy, I always thought of the summer. But you know, the Renee and and Sarah, I didn't think of initially like just in as I was writing at least because they're synonymous more with Broadway and um and and Sarah being a recording artist and Tina was really like oh my gosh first of all I worked with Renee in Sisters and she's hilarious and Renee also did co-op the documentary now episode that was so funny um and and then and we were like oh she would be amazing and but and Sarah Bareilles, Tina was like, you know, I saw her in Waitress, she's incredible. And then I watched the Tonys where she co-hosted, and she was so natural and so funny. And we thought, oh my gosh, she could easily be in a dream world, the person that is kind of holding this this foursome together and grounding it um, in reality as like insanity happens, um, swirls about and they said yes, like, and, and I think, I really think they said, they said yes to Tina Fey. I mean, I think they liked the script, but they didn't really know me. Um, and I'm just, I, I'm like over the moon. They're just my favorite cast ever. Well, what were you able to do to make sure that they sounded good together? Because that seems like a pretty rather big difference between simply casting people who can sing, but casting people who actually work as a group. Well, I mean, I, that's more like, I didn't know being an idiot. I had no idea um, if that would work or not. But <laughs> Jeff Richmond, who is really responsible for the sound of the show, um, it's he, he, we would do, and over, especially we were doing this during, you know, COVID. So we did a lot of individual recording sessions where, you know, they would assemble these hor harmonies in the studio. And I don't know how you do that. I have no idea. I'm not a singer. So Jeff figured it out and it worked. And they, and they all, um, you know, on set, they like to sing together. They, they found their harmony, their way to harmonize together on their own as well. They had a great chemistry that I think really helped us. So. And, and they also, as you noted, have such different backgrounds and, you know, it's it's one thing to know that Renee is capable of being funny, but that's a very different thing from the way that Paula is capable of being funny and the way that she's a writer of comedy and all of that. How does that impact the writing when you don't necessarily know if all four of the actors are going to have the same experience and comfort level with improvisation, with, with doing different yeah. takes and whatnot? Well, it was interesting because, uh, like, I would start you, you tr with 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 like Renee and Sarah, where you weren't really sure about, you know, they're just there's just less film of them doing comedy than there is of, um, you know, Busy and Paula. So I kind of, you know, because I worked, I wrote for Busy on when she would be on Kimmy Schmidt, I wrote for her and I was so familiar with Paula's work. Um, and so that that was like a there was like a comfortable shoe kind of component to writing for the two of them. And then finding it, what was cool is during the table reads, you would write jokes, you know, table reads are there to practice, see, see what's hitting, what's not. And then you would get surprised by the things that would hit for Renee and Sarah, because 
you, you, you know, you didn't have the experience of knowing exactly what they would like kill. And then, um, like Renee, for example, is so funny when she sings, she'll like sing a punchline. And so I just started writing so many more of those for her as she, uh, as the season went on. Um, and the writers and I did like leaned into that. So you just found where they excelled. And Sarah is like, who knew a freaking amazing physical comedian? Like she can prat fall and it's, she's incredible at it. Like she's so good. So you learn these things. It was like on the job training for that. For, for the two of them, especially for us to be like, oh, now we're going to write more t- towards this because they're amazing at it. Well, it's funny. We had Tracy Wigfield on the podcast uh, for her Say by the Bell reboot, and she made a joke about how certain characters that she writes just inherently have this through line going back to Jenna Maroney, for example, from 30 Rock. And you weren't on 30 Rock, but I'm curious if there is not a sort of hive mind, but if there are commonalities to the voices that come out of the Tina Fey, Robert Carlock school at this point? I mean, it's, yes, I think there are. For example, I think that, you know, there, there are similarities sometimes between like Renee, uh, Wiki has some qualities that, that line up with, um, Jacqueline Voorhees and Titus, like this sort of grand, this grandiosity. Um, uh, I think there's, there's that, but then there's also, there's also a little bit of Jacqueline in, um, in Busy's character Summer, where she has been sort of in this one world, uh, this one marriage with her husband and it's not quite it. And so for her to kind of, find her footing and go out on her own. I think it's, there's some similarities, but I don't know. I, I, yeah, I think there's similarities throughout. It's hard not to, it's hard not to, when you like to write jokes for people acting certain ways. Yeah. Uh, As, so I've seen the first four and there are some incredible guest stars. Um, I'm going to spoil a couple here. So consider this your spoiler of the warning, but Tina Fey is Dolly Parton. Stephen Colbert is a brilliant songwriter. Uh, one of the things that I was curious about is how do you approach guest casting? Cause this feels such like the, these are like, you're, you're go, you're really going for it and getting these top line guest stars for these just amazing scenes. Well, roles. We, uh, I mean, I'm, I pinch myself that they said, yes. Um, I feel like I used my my favor for Steven and now I owe him forever. Um, but I worked for him for a long time, for six years, and I, I, he was just so game from go. Like I wrote the character and I thought, oh my gosh, Steven would be so funny at this. And also it'd be so different from what he's doing night to night. Um, it might be freeing. It was especially, it was during, you know, right off with all the election stuff. And he's, you know, it was just like, maybe this is a fun break for him from news. Um, to throw on a wig and play a Swedish songwriter. And so I kind of used my shot and asked him, and he said he was like an immediate yes. <laughs> I was like, I love you so much. He's the greatest. And then it was also so funny, too, because when he got to set and we shot like 
we shot an incredible amount of pages into one day because he only had one day, but, but that character was such a big part of that episode. And so we just had to streamline it into one set and all the stuff. But I, I said he was off book. And then I said to him like, Hey, you know, our assistant's grandmother's friend, whatever has, uh, can help you with pronunciations of these words. And he goes, Oh, that's so nice. But I called Alexander Skarsgård. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> He's like, I caught him last night. I'm good. I'm like, okay, cool, cool. That's great. Um, so that, so Steven was incredible. And then Tina, who's obviously like, she's my mentor in life. And like, she's on the EP on the show. And the Dolly story started and we were, we went to Dolly Parton. We never heard back. I don't know if we, maybe we just got like the receptionist at Dolly World, but we, um, we, cause we all are huge fans of Dolly Parton. And uh, after we was getting closer and closer to shooting and we didn't have a Dolly and Tina played her during the table read and was so funny. And then she kindly said she would, she would play the role and she's, her voice acting in it is so good. I mean, and her costume is amazing. Any other big dream guest stars or anything else that you want to tease uh, during season one that's to come? Uh, that's coming down the pike. I mean, we had Vanessa Williams, who is amazing. Uh, she's just so awesome and funny and wonderful. Um, she's in two episodes. Andrew Rannells is a dream uh, to work with and so funny. And, you know, you get into edit and every take he does is slightly different and it's all, it all works. And he's just such a pro and he's just hilarious. We had Bowen Yang, uh, who is in the show on us, you know, he's on SNL and he kills it and he's so funny and he was just wonderful. Um, and yeah, and we had, we just had, we just had such a great group of people that, oh, we had John Slattery come on playing himself. And that was a dream. Like I wrote it being like, is he going to, is he going to do this? And then Tina. See, the power of Tina Fey, guys. Let's just give it up for her. Because she send an email or call somebody, and then they say yes. And it's it's wonderful. I mean, I don't know what the show would have looked like if it was just me trying to do it. <laughs> I might have gotten Steven, because that was the one person I brought to the table. But everybody else, I think the power of, of Tina and Robert. Let's, let's talk a bit more about the songs, because... Obviously, there had to have been in your mind at some point the idea that, okay, we're going to have funny people, so they'll be only able to sing a little, so maybe that'll mean we have to do this much, you know, music. How much, once you got the cast you got with the musical talents they had, did that change your approach to how much music you wanted to have? Um, that's a great question. So, you know, we had a lot of the scripts completed before we ever started filming. Um, but one thing that we did was once we got this incredible cast, you know, and the, and the, the, the snippets of music that you see in the show are all part of the story. So, you know, cause it's not a musical. So it's, you know, you, you step out and see a chunk of music, maybe 30 seconds. I mean, sometimes it's two minutes or something like that, but then it's never a full, full, full performance. And, um, but we were having these, we had these amazing, they're, they're just so good. And Jeff Richmond, who's our incredible, he, like he does all the music for the show. You know, I, I give him lyrics and the writers give him lyrics and he also, you know, pitches lyrics sometimes too. And, uh, and he turns them into these earworms that are just like super viable and awesome. And so we got to a point where it's like, 
okay, in each episode, what if we took us this snippet uh, of a song that we see featured in the episode and then and write the rest? We all wanted, you know, I wanted like so many of these songs. I'm like, I just want to write more of it. I want to write more of it. And then, um, and we'd write more and then play the rest during credits. So it kind of is an incentive to stick around. And we're also doing an album. So we, uh, we ended up creating nine songs and Sarah Bareilles wrote one of them, um, which the show sort of, the season sort of builds to, and it's so beautiful. Um, so, but yeah, I mean, by the end, I was just like, oh, the music is so, because I, I didn't know if I could write lyrics. Uh, I mean, I wrote dumb songs for, on Kimmy Schmidt all the time, but they were super short and I'm not super musical, but I thought, oh, I'll lean on Jeff and he'll help me through it. And, and he would, like, I'd give him stuff and he'd say, you know, Mayor, we need another, we need a bridge here. We need another verse here. And then I'd be like, okay, rhyme zone, what are we going to do? That com. Um, and, but yeah, by the end, I was kind of like, you know, the music is so fun. I, I would, I would, and the fact that we're on Peacock and we don't have to keep it to 21 minutes or something like that gives us an opportunity to live in some of the music a little bit longer. So in season two, I would love to do that if we could, if we get a season two, knock wood. You know, so I was going to ask you too. So, so which came first, you know, the, the, the joke songs or, or the scripts, like how, like, I know that you and your writers worked on it. So like, you know, can you describe the process of just writing the song snippets and then obviously, you know, coming up with the entire thing? Cause like the, there's a, the, the song, it's the, the New York Lonely Boys is, I was just, I had tears in my eyes. I was laughing. That's such a very personal song to me because my son, I have a three and a half year old boy and I, since he's since he's been born he's our only child and I always call him a New York lonely boy it's just like what I call him um as you know the kind of kid that just eats sushi and hangs out with older parents and and loves doorman and whatever and and I and and we just sort of developed the story and it was the first time we were kind of like oh maybe we can write a song that they don't have to necessarily sing but music can be a big part of that episode and so we wrote it um and it was just delightful and then we decided to blow it out and and write more for the you know make it a full song and then we got the milk carton kids who sarah brellis knows and was like oh sh they, these these guys would be great covering this song so they were kind enough to sing it and it's one of my favorite songs and my son is a hundred like i i could cut a music video of him just his like commitment to using a napkin between bites of food is he's just <laughs> he's right he's right in that wheelhouse of New York only boy. Like I have a video of him going, of him with going, Alexa, play Joni Mitchell's coyote. Like, <laughs> <laughs> oh no, my Alexa's coming on. That's so funny. Alexa off. Um, <laughs> but he's, he's this awesome little guy. And it's like, and, and another writer, um, uh, Lauren Gerganis, who's one of the writers on that episode, also has a solo son in New York. And um, so it was really fun to work on. And with the song that Sarah wrote, did you have to do, did you have to leave not so subtle hints for a couple months? Oh, we're just looking for this one big song for the end and we can't find anyone to write it. Do you know anyone, Sarah? Like, how do, how do you make those hints to get her well, to write Tina, that song? Well, Tina's very good at like a slow play. So she 
when we first met Sarah um, over Zoom, you know, a long time ago, she said, you know, and of course there's opportunities if you wanted to, no pressure, but if you wanted to, you know, write music or or um, be part of the creation of any of the original songs, we, we are totally open to that, but no pressure. You can just show up and act, whatever. Um, and she, you know, and then we sort of let that percolate. And then I think Jeff asked her one day, like, hey, you maybe want to, we got this idea for a song that would go well that starts in this episode and episode five and kind of carries throughout the rest of the, the season. And would you be interested? And she was, and we were happy. And it's good. I'm also curious about the the music videos because it it seems like it would be a lot of work to set up an entire music video, sir. Um, you know, shot for a five second clip. So, how much more of that is there out there? You mentioned that there's going to be a CD, but are there full length music videos that we're there only seeing one. seconds of? Yeah, there is one that we shot a full length video to Famous Five Eva, and. Um, so there'll be a, the full one. And it, it also incorporates footage from today. So it's it's not like exactly their old video, but it's a lot of their old uh, video. Um, but then it, at a certain point it jumps. And so you see the characters today. But um, I mean, I would love to make more. It was just like a production. It's just a lot of production to like put each one on. So, you know, I, I wanted to do in episode three, there's this montage of them looking back at their old work and it became like it's a, a huge like our our set designer i feel like i was going to kill her to you know she she just was working so hard and i um uh this wonderful woman teresa and i you know we were always trying to figure out okay how can we make this a one wall set how can we make this a two wall set how can we shoot this in a in in use our studio um uh you know out in queens and just shoot against like a garage door to make it look like it's because a lot of those music videos, that's what it looks like they did. Um, so we, we got creative to try to maximize the amount of old footage we could use um, without, you know, but yeah. yeah. End of sentence. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, and that kind of actually, you know, there were, there were a couple of scenes and I don't, I won't spoil them here that, that I wondered, you know, if that was the, the result of the pandemic and shooting during the, uh, during the pandemic, not that the pandemic is over, but you know what I mean? Yeah. In a larger sense, how did the pandemic in, impact the kinds of scenes that you were going to do? I mean, they're a girl group, but we don't really see the fan interaction type stuff. Yeah, we had, I mean, we really didn't have the ability to have a lot of extras. I mean, it was a safety issue. Um, and so we, we had to, we navigated around that. Um, and, you know, so sometimes when they're performing, it's a lot of bright lights in their face and stuff, but hopefully it doesn't take you out of it. We did, we did do things. We got a little creative with like in episode six, they play, um, they play a show in Brooklyn, a abandoned mannequin warehouse. So I'm like, hey, there's some bodies we can throw in there that are not human. Um, and we also, you know, uh, we had to lean a little bit on Ingenuity, our uh, VFX house, to try to help us out. We didn't do too much tiling of crowds, but we did have to get very creative in, in, um, in where we shot. And we would often lose, like we would have a location and then we'd lose the permit and have to pivot very quickly. Um, or like I, you know, there'd be a, 
a locked shooting draft and then all of a sudden it's like that's not let's unlock that and go back and it's like we're not shooting in a planetarium we're going to make this in the apartment and um so I did a lot of kind of you know last minute rearranging to try to fit the story into the bag that we had which was unexpected but it was it was all it all worked so hopefully hopefully it you know doesn't feel like there's just four people existing um, and no one else is around. <laughs> Presumably it has to at least be easier when you're doing a new show that you have to start under these circumstances because you haven't established a video, you know, a visual template or anything from a non, you know, a pre-COVID world. Have you had conversations with, with colleagues on shows that have had to return to production about sort of this being a, I don't want to say easier job that you have, but to some degree easier because you get well, to make your own rules? Yeah, I mean, I worked, I worked on Mr. Mayor as well, and that was a show that ha that got stopped down during COVID and then restarted. And luckily, it was mostly shot on sets anyway. And because shooting on set is just more controllable because you just it's just easier to have everybody super tested in the building, and there's just less of an unknown quantity. Um, and then, um, and they they were able to go back to work. I. I I don't know. You know, it was a lot of cross shooting, which I think is nice because you get to move faster. Um, uh, but I don't think that the visual style of their show was very affected by COVID because Universal had such good protocols in place to keep everybody safe and return to work. Right. And, you know, you mentioned that you hope that this is a show that gets a second season. First, the first part of the question is, how many seasons do you see this running? And what kind of conversations as we start to reenter society with um, in a post-vaccine world, how do you see the show kind of growing and, and the girl group, Girls 5 Eva, kind of expanding and, and, you know, and filming with possibly extras and, and maybe expanding the scope yeah. of, of the show in season two? I mean, I really, I really like the idea because I, I agree that I, that the fans were not a huge part of season one and you know, there's fans for the, you know, there's fans out there. So I didn't get to, I mean, there's one episode where she does, where Wiki finds a bunch of fans that she didn't know she had, but um, I would like to expand the world a little bit so that you can meet, you can see them, see, see crowds more, you know, if they, if they're playing a show where you really get to feel that. I mean, I think we hopefully did a good job tricking people to making it feel that way. Um, um, but yeah, I'd love to expand so you can see more people. Yeah. But do you have like a, a six season plan in place for girls five Eva or is, um, I don't have it. Like I don't have it fully mapped out to, you know, Oh, this is what happens in season six, but I, I have, ideas generally about where it could go over the next few seasons um, if we're lucky enough to get those. So I, I hope we do. But I do like the idea. I do like the idea of kind of keeping them a bit in the underdog world because I just like writing underdogs. I like to write scrappy people trying and failing. And so um, I like that. So I feel like going into season two, they'll, they'll retain that sort of quality that you saw in season one. But um, yeah, I don't think they're, they're not going to be four JLOs yet. <laughs> is, is the hope though, that as this goes out, that, uh, sort of musicians from this period will be reaching out and, uh, you know, hoping to make cameos in the future. Is this a vehicle that you think could sustain this? <laughs> oh, I welcome cameos. I mean, we, we did have, uh, we did, 
you know, want to have cameos that, you know, we did get Carson Daly to, to lend his voice to his former self, which was great, um, uh, in a flashback. And I would love to bring in people of that era to, to play themselves or play a character. Um, that would be amazing. I mean, some of it was, you know, I had, I had a bit written for Lance Bass, but I couldn't do it because of COVID because the, like the state to state, um, you know, rules couldn't really allow tra yeah, travel bans. So I would welcome like those kind of cameos to come, to come in. Well, but when you sort of bring in the real world, as we've seen from the recent Britney Spears documentary and, and from various stories about what happened with Lou Pearlman and his various bands, there, there's a certain amount of real darkness and kind of tangible sadness that could be in the background of this. How much do you think that this show has the flexibility to include kind of the dramatic elements? Well, I do think that the show... You know, it has a joke, like blah, 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 machine gun joke kind of feeling. But I do think there's moments of true emotion and heart that are in the show that I hope come through. Um, I've cried watching the show. Like I've, there's a, I, it's also because <laughs> seeing a baby born or something. But I, um, <laughs> I do think there are genuine moments of emotion and this cast is capable wildly capable of playing just about anything. So I think we could step out and, and, you know, take, take things seriously if we need to, um, uh, for some of the darker elements. In your mind, does it feel kind of similar to the way Kimmy Schmidt had that sort of backstory that could have been really every bit as dark as you wanted it to be or or not? Because that was always the thing that I found fascinating about Kimmy Schmidt, whereas the more you thought about what happened in those 15 years of her life, the more traumatizing it would seem. And the show didn't often go that way, but you could kind of see it was in the background. It was it is. Yeah, it's definitely in the background um, for sure. Um, and she, she, her character was always a character that chose joy in life and affirmation and moving forward and seeing the best in people and trying to break people out of their bunkers. And so I have a similar, uh, feeling about this show where I feel like, okay, they, they were treated like crap from this manager that had them sign an awful contract and probably locked them in tanning booths and stuff like that. And, and they, um, are going to persevere because they're, they're badasses and, and, and choose joy and choose trying. Like, I just think I, I personally think like when you're at this stage in life, it's, it's really easy to just sort of sit back and coast on the things you've already built. It's very hard to put yourself out there and, and, you know, try, just try at something. And I just think these four women are emblematic of doing that and how hard it is. And it doesn't matter, you know, they don't, it's okay. They're going to fail. And a lot of the comedy is in the failures, but at the core there, there's joy. And you still do have that sort of, I don't know, the, the manager character with a certain amount of corruption, a certain amount of ickiness about him, but you really do play that character mostly for for laughs. How important was it for you to not have that character be compared to directly to any number of characters who weren't maybe quite so funny in terms of the exploitation of yeah, their resources? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> he's, he's a very, Jonathan Hader, he's super, a uh, super funny actor and he's able to kind of pull off lines that 
where he's, where he's clearly exploiting these four women. And, um, or, um, and it's still funny. Like it's, it still feels safe and okay. Um, but I don't think he was, he, he's a punching bag for us, um, because he's, he was terrible, but he, he didn't, he maybe didn't rise to the level of, of some of the monsters that are out there. So he's, he still has like, he's like a gadfly quality, but he did, he did control them. You know, it's not like he's completely innocent. They, they shouldn't work with him. Um, and, and, and that's another thing, like his character sort of striving to be better, but he's never doing it. Like he air honks instead of grabs their boobs now. So he's trying, but he's not, he's not, he's not as terrible as someone like Lou Pearlman, but he's not that far off. Yeah. <laughs> Well, Meredith, we always love to end these interviews with the same question. What have you been watching and enjoying? The last movie I watched was A Promising Young Woman. I thought that was really, really strong and, and amazing. Um, I love The Righteous Gemstones. It's a great show. I'm excited for that to come back for season two. I don't know. I watch a lot of, like, animal fighting documentaries and footage for my son he loves to be like what if an alligator and a puma fought who would win so we end up looking up that kind of stuff a lot and comparing animal fights <laughs> excellent well thank you so much for joining us on the podcast we appreciate it oh thank you so much for watching the show and and for, for having me all eight episodes of girls five eva season one are now streaming on peacock Number five. As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics' Corner. Among this week's major new launches, Peacock bows Girls 5 Ever. You just heard our interview with the showrunner. Mark Millar's first Netflix series, Jupiter's Legacy, premieres. Apple goes back to Mythic Quest. Z-Way marks her Showtime debut. Alex Gibney returns to HBO with Crime of the Century. And Gene Smart takes center stage in Hacks for HBO Max. Dan, what you got? Lots of stuff this week. So much stuff this week. Goodness gracious. Um, I mean, we can certainly just start with Girls 5 Eva. Um, I have talked several times about how Mr. Mayor is sort of a, a baseline show for me in that it makes me laugh exactly the right number of times per episode to keep me watching to the next week, but not enough times for me to ever feel the need to recommend it to people as a show to watch. Uh, Girls 5 Epa is much funnier than Mr. Mayor, so that is the key thing. But there are still definitely similarities on shows within the Tina Fey and Robert Carlock brand and there's this this definitely does feel like it's an extension of 30 rock it's sort of 30 rock meets pop star and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that as a as a brand and it's especially true because the cast is so very good and so very likable you have Sarah Bareilles and it's almost impossible to watch the show and watch her performance and not basically think of her as an extension of Liz Lemon. And she's surprisingly solid at it. If you know Paula Pell from AP Bio or the other various things she's been stealing scenes from over the years, you, you have a pretty good sense of what she does here. And so if you find that thing funny, you will find her very funny here. To me, without any question, the two kind of breakouts, um, and not necessarily breakouts because 
no one's going to be surprised that they're talented people are busy Phillips. Who's extremely funny as, uh, the sort of bubbly, bubbly airheaded, uh, character summer and Renee Elise Goldsberry particularly is really both generally hilarious. And I mean, she's, you know, freaking Tony winner, Renee Elise Goldsberry. So it isn't the least bit surprising that she's a remarkable vocalist and that they're able to have a lot of fun with how good she is singing. It is a great and deep cast of people making sort of supporting performances and guest performances. And I, I laughed a few times, a handful of times each episode, and the songs are catchy as well. So this this one's a pretty easy recommendation, um, and I've been led to believe that while you are not a critic, you watched all eight episodes and you were very positive on it. I love this show, Dan. You know, um, I I will say after we after I watched the show. I, it reminded me how I felt after I binged Ted Lasso for the first time. And it, it just feels like an antidote for the last year and a half. And it's just like, that's the energy that I kind of, the energy of the show is kind of the energy that I want for the rest of the year. And, and the entire cast uh, uh, did a, a, a mix of the Spice Girls wannabe with Jimmy Fallon and the Roots this week. Um, if you haven't seen it, Watch it. It's hilarious. It's brilliant. And it 100% captures the energy of the show. It's so much fun. The jokes are so rapid fire that you almost want to watch with subtitles on because some of them fly so fast you wind up rewinding to make sure you catch them. I, I loved it. And I'm admittedly not a huge 30 Rock fan, which I know you can make fun of me here, but I'm obsessed. And I'm going to rewatch the whole thing because it's just, it's just so much fun and it's a great distraction. And you know, you heard our interview with the showrunner and it's fun. You know, like if you if you loved and enjoyed Ted Lasso because it, it felt like the right the big warm hug that you needed uh, during the pandemic last year, then I think this one to me feels like the one that's going to, you know, inject inject you with energy to kind of maybe dip your toe back out now that it's getting a little bit safer, at least here in Los Angeles. Speaking of shows that got some solid value out of the pandemic, um, Mythic Quest on Apple TV or Mythic Quest Raven's Banquet had the best of the spring Zoom episodes that everyone felt they needed to do. And then they had another kind of strange surprise bonus episode that premiered a couple of weeks ago. So make sure you saw that. Not that it's really a, a continuity show, uh, but the new season starts on Friday on Apple TV. They kind of do a wacky thing where they air episodes on a weekly basis. Um, and I don't want to say I was disappointed by the new season, but the first season had hit and miss episodes, but in its best moments, I thought I saw a version of the show where it could take a leap and become an absolute top tier show in its second season. If it smoothed out some of the bumpy spots and just became more consistent. And what I'm going to say is that the second season is a lot like the first season for me. And that when it shines, it is really, really good. I think that there that this is a, a very good performance by Rob McElhaney, who's the who's co-creator as well. I continue to think that Charlotte Nickdow is probably giving my favorite performance in the show. Uh, when it's humming, the show is very good, and it's giving an interesting workplace environment look at this subset of the world. And I, I think that that's 
an interesting thing to watch, but it definitely has episodes where it, the show feels a little frantic, where it feels a little sweaty, where it feels like the direction in some cases has mostly been to the actors yell. Um, there is a flashback episode. I actually prefer this year's flashback episode to last season's flashback episode. And there are good cameos. Stick around after the flashback episode. William Hurt pops up. That's kind of fun. William Hurt. Sure. Why not? Uh, so yeah, I think, I think that, that Mystic Quest is a good show. I think in the first season, I thought it had the potential to be a great show. I don't think that it's making that leap this season, but oh my dear God, it's better than Jupiter's Legacy premiering on Friday on Netflix, which is just plain awful. There, there is nothing else I can say about that. It is created by Stephen DeKnight, who is a very good creator and director who has done some very, very solid shows. And, and he has to know that this is a bad show. It is based on a comic series by Mark Millar. And um, I don't know that I've ever seen anything by Mark Millar where I didn't really see what its thematic point was. I don't always like what the, them the thematic points of his comics and the adaptations are, and sometimes they're muddled. But I don't know that I've ever seen something where I where I walked away and said, okay, I don't know what he has to say here. And this is such a generic, derivative, interchangeable bit of superhero pastiche. And I can't imagine a human being watching this show and not feeling like they've seen everything in it done better in shows ranging from very obvious shows like The Boys and Umbrella Academy and Doom Patrol, which are all doing basically the same superhero team-up thing, only significantly better. There's a lot of superhero with daddy issues stuff, and if you watched Amazon's Invincible through to the end, it did a significantly better job with that. Um, Superman and Lois on the CW is doing a better job of it. There are really and truly a lot of perfectly good superhero shows on right now, there is no reason to waste your time on a show this dull and this blandly cast. There, there are, it's not well written to begin with, but there's just no way that if you're putting your not particularly well written lines in the mouth of Josh Demel, that they're going to become any better. That's that's just the reality of the situation. I think he is sometimes a likable actor who who is sometimes good with, you know, little light comedy aspects. I would say that he is a much better comic actor than a dramatic actor, in fact. Um I, I don't even feel like that's a difficult thing to say. I would say similarly that Leslie Bibb is an actress who I would even go so far as to say she's a great comic actress. I, I would I would say that with authority. As a dramatic actress, she's less interesting. She's not good here. There are a lot of young actors who are very forgettable here. Um, Jupiter's Legacy is completely and totally skippable. Um, yeah. So let's continue because there's a lot of stuff. Uh, you mentioned Z-Way has her eponymous Showtime show premiering this weekend. And there, there are some funny things in this show. If you know Z-Way, her background includes writing on a couple shows that I've really loved. She wrote on Rundown with Robin Thede and she wrote on Jesus and Marrow. And both Robin Thede and Jesus and Marrow have been podcast guests over the years because they're really good. and Their shows are really good. Um, her Showtime show is a little bit on the variety side. She, 
She does interviews. She sings. She plays characters, etc. And it's it's a little sloppy and messy in the way that a, a new show is going to be. And some things I didn't laugh at at all. And some things I did. I've seen three episodes. She has some pretty decent interviews. Um, I would say that in the first episode, her interview with uh, Fran Lebowitz is really, really cringy and really, really funny. And I quite enjoyed it. There, there are guest stars in each episode. Basically, there's enough in each of the three episodes to make me want to keep watching because I, I think she's got a great comic voice. And I think that given more time to refine it, there could be even better things that she's doing than she's doing here. But I think this is a very promising start. So if you like Z-Way in general, or if you don't know her, I recommend you check it out. The episodes are also really short, which is nice. Uh, the opposite of things that are short, I'm trying hard to make transitions in Critics Corner this week, would be Alex Gibney's uh, four-hour crime of the century, uh, his documentary about the opioid crisis, and about the easiest way to put it is it's exactly what you would expect an Alex Gibney four-hour documentary about the op opioid crisis to be. Uh, Alex Gibney does solid investigative documentary pieces. He does not, at this point, often do aesthetically inspired pieces. He's also in a little bit of a reactive mode, uh, doing things that other people have covered extensively, and that's his his thing on the Russian interference in the election in the fall was just not all that revelatory. It was a good encapsulation of an argument that dozens of news programs and even comedy programs had done previously. So nothing in that was revelatory. And that is going to be the same here. Basically, it is the same stuff you have heard on last week tonight on a dozen different TV news magazines, etc. Basically about the drug companies profiting off of opioid proliferation, addiction, and death in the United States, and how genuinely awful people have made billions of dollars off of getting Americans hooked on drugs that either they didn't need, or if they did need, were not being well enough regulated to be therapeutic. And it's horrible and it's disgusting and it's disgusting because it's been allowed to happen by politicians and by law enforcement who have also benefited in their own ways. And so, yes, this will get you angry as to how many things. Honestly, I didn't know in any way, shape or form that I learned from this. Not honestly that much. And I think personally for me, if I'm going to watch four hours of a documentary, I like to learn a little bit more, but Whatever. It's uh, it's an important topic, and it's important to periodically get mad at again. So, yeah. And then premiering next Thursday, so might as well get it in before the premiere, as opposed to something like Girls 5 Ever, where we came in after, uh, is Hacks on HBO Max. And it is the story of a young millennial comic um, who is played by Hannah Einbinder, who makes a mistake on Twitter and is canceled and finds herself scrambling for work and ends up working with a Joan Rivers-esque Las Vegas legend uh, played by Gene Smart. And butting of heads ensue. Uh, I didn't love the first episode. That is the first thing I have to say. Um, but I really, really liked each of the subsequent episodes more and more. And so 
worth keeping in mind as you get started. I, I think that it is a great vehicle for Gene Smart. But at this point, what is not a great vehicle for Jane Smart? Jane Smart is currently also tearing up your TV on HBO in Mirror of Easttown. So if you are unaware that Jane, Jane Smart is one of our national treasures... At this point, you probably should be fully aware of that. Uh, but on the other hand, she's she's a national treasure who has been largely best used in supporting roles. And so this is a star vehicle for her. And I think there's a lot of value in that. So definitely worth checking out. I think Gene Smart is great. I didn't initially like uh, Hannah Einbender all that much, but... By again the second and third episodes, I was finding her a lot more appealing, and then it's a it's another cast where it's a very very solid cast. So Christopher McDonald has a very Christopher McDonald esque part that runs through it. Uh, Caitlin Olson, who I'm always happy to see in things, pops up here and there as Gene Smart's daughter, and that's a really good piece of casting. So yeah, lots and lots of good things to it. And maybe you'll even love the first episode, in which case you won't need my, you know, my recommendation of the rest to keep going. But allow me to say the first episode I found a little bumpy and then it got significantly better for me after that. So yeah, I really liked episode two. Yeah, I think I think it it's just one of those shows where the, where the premise requires more work than it's necessarily worth and maybe they could have done a simpler way i don't i don't really like the way they introduced the she gets canceled for things she write, wrote on twitter because you know then it becomes almost for people who follow such things and know such things it becomes kind of the megan amram story and i think that what happened on twitter with megan amram is probably more interesting and requires more consideration than this is able to give it in the first episode. Instead, this is kind of a, she said something on Twitter. Oh, it's a big mistake. Now she can't get employed. But then after you get past that, it doesn't stay relevant. I assume it'll become relevant again at some point. But I, I kind of wish if they hadn't wanted to explore the cancellation thing and the idea that, you know, the idea that the comics, that many comics use Twitter as, basically their equivalent of a dingy nightclub where they're trying out things that they say. And, you know, sometimes they say things that they know are risque and that they know probably are going to bomb, you know, they, so there's the perception that they see this as being the place to test out in some cases, really bad ideas. And I, I find that interesting. I don't find it a valid argument for being racist on Twitter, but I find it, a phenomenon that is worth exploring here. The way they handle it is not really that. And so whatever, get past that worth watching for Gene smart and good Lord. That was entirely too much TV in this week's critics corner, Leslie. But good stuff though. Good weekend for TV. And for more of Dan's recommendations, be sure to subscribe to THR's now see this newsletter. That feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you for listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. We'll be back next week with living single creator Yvette Lee Bowser, who has a new show on Stars called Run the World. Be sure to subscribe on all of your various podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, write a little reviewy thing. It does help move us up various lists at various podcasting platforms. You can 
always come say hi to us on Twitter. Let us know what you liked, what you didn't like, what we totally blew. We like to hear that. If you have actual questions for future podcasts, probably not for the next couple of weeks because upfronts are going to make everything insane, but probably when that's over, a mailbag segment would be really nice. So you can email us at TV's top five at THR.com. That's TV's top five, the numeral five at THR.com. Until next week, Leslie. Until next week, Dan. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.